Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this evening, Acts 17. Uh, if you're new to the church, uh, my name is Alex. I'm one of the leaders around here. Um, this is a uh, church plant, essentially. I always, my wife and I <laughs> always go back and forth. How long uh, do you have to be a church before you can kind of drop the, the plant part of it? Because uh, I never wanted to be like a church planter. You know, I don't know if you guys know this. There's like people who they want to be church planters. Like that's their thing. I want to plant churches. And they're like, you know, they're almost like um, entrepreneurs for the kingdom. And that was never me. I just love the church. And I just wanted to be a part of the church. Um, But here we are. We've planted a church. We've been a church for about, uh, well, if you count the monthly gatherings, about three years. Uh, Two and a half years we've been meeting regularly, uh, weekly. And um, what God has done in those uh, two and a half, three years has just been incredible. Um, It's been, we've seen more fruit than we thought we would see. (laughs) We'll just put it that way. And um, we're, we've been in a series actually for a, a while now uh, in the book of Acts, and we're calling this series uh, House of Acts. Uh, we don't want to just read about what um, amazing people filled with the Holy Spirit did in this book. We actually want to become a house of action, a house of acts. We, we want to look at what's happening around us and go, oh yeah, that reminds me of this. <laughs> that reminds me of what's going on in the scriptures. Um, a couple weeks ago, I gave, I, I try to do this uh, every year, I give a message that I, is kind of a prophetic sense of where, where I think we're going as a church, um, or where I think this church is, is going to be in a year. And uh, I gave this message called The Beautiful Church, The Year of the Beautiful Church, and we looked at Isaiah 60, which has just become this chapter, it's so beautiful, go and read Isaiah 60 if you haven't read it, but just this incredible chapter um, all about what happens to a place when a group of people decide to rise and shine uh, in God's presence. What happens when you become a representation of God's presence? And um, anyways, I, I, I just love this chapter. One of the uh, verses in Isaiah chapter 60 is verse 21, and it says this. It says, when this group of people arises and they shine, <laughs> all your people will be righteous. And I read that and I thought, I think there will be, you know, I think about our church, I think a lot of people will be righteous in Newburgh because of our church, but all? (laughs) And the Lord asked me, he said, do you think all of Newburgh can be saved? And I was like, oh, I want my faith to be so big. I'm like, a lot of it. (laughs) He's like, I didn't ask you that. Do you think all of Newburgh can be saved? (sighs) I think it's possible. But I think that what that means is there's going to be a significant amount of mission that comes out of this church, a significant amount of evangelism that comes out of this church. Evangelism that's relational, (laughs) 
walking with your neighbor for years, conversations in the front yard and over the dinner table, talking about what you believe and why you believe, why you have joy, giving a reason for the peace that you carry. I also think it's gonna be spontaneous, people in chapters just feeling an urge, I have to share my faith with this person, I don't know why I'm gonna just do it. Um, I, I think we're gonna do alpha. <laughs> We've done alpha in the past, but you know, now that we're starting to gather back together, do Alpha again, and you, where you can invite your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers to have a conversation about the deep questions of life and see where it leads. Um, and we're so ready for this. Can you feel it? Like, I, I've been talking to some of you, hearing from some of you, and it's like you can't hold it inside. <laughs> it's like, I've, I've had this conversation with multiple people this past week. You're like, I'm coming to the church, I'm encountering God, I'm meeting with him, I'm getting so filled up, it can't stay in here. <laughs> It can't stay inside of me. It has to go somewhere, this love that I have, this passion that I have. And so we're just so ready for this, guys. So here's what I wanna do tonight. I wanna talk a little bit about how we do mission. How do we do mission? How do we do evangelism? I, I wanna talk about that. And, and, and I wanna get a little bit of a lesson from the master evangelist himself, Paul, okay? So uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we pick up the story here. This is what's going on. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his other people that he's on mission with, he was greatly distressed. Make note of that. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So... I love Paul. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. You're like, don't get in a debate with Paul. <laughs> Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing <laughs> but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Little Jewish Gentile dig there. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. Starting out on the strong foot there. <laughs> and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him. 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Verse 28, and he quotes here, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, speaking of Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection, so Paul, Paul's little sermonette, over. <laughs> Here's what happens. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. <laughs> but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is just a masterful example of engaging a culture. Notice what Paul does here. It really is masterful. It's obvious to Paul that these worshipers of the gods, the plural, think about the, the Greek pantheon, these worshiper, worshipers of the gods are worried that they missed one. And so just in case... They have the statue to the unknown God. They're like, we got a lot of gods, but maybe we missed one. So we better get this statue to the unknown God. And Paul is familiar with their cultural context. He knows the culture's prophets. He quotes their poets. Often, uh, in, in even our culture today, the artists, the authors within our culture are the voices of honesty. <laughs> they, they express the felt fears and the desires of a people group, Right? And they're, they're, artists are often grotesquely honest about the emotional state of a place. You want to know how a country is doing? Look at their art. And Paul, being a good missionary, he seeks to understand the context, to understand the collective ache that they have, this cultural need that's within them. And Paul really zeroes in on what that is when he quotes their poets. Look back down at your Bibles, verse 28. This is a quote of a poet. Uh, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's a quote that he had heard. And then he quotes him again. Some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Um, these are two quotes from two uh, Greek philosophers that I'm not even going to attempt to say their names. They're, they're quite interesting. Uh, but he knows of them. And in fact, in some of your Bibles, if you just look down in the, at the bottom, it'll tell you who actually wrote those different quotes. So, so what is this ache that he zeroes in on? Well, here's what it is. The ache to be fathered. They're like, for in him we move and we live and we have our being. We are his what? Offspring. I just wish I had a dad. I just wish that I had a God who could know me and love me like a father. It's an ache even for singularity. It's so interesting. The poets that he quotes aren't like, for in them we live and we move and we have our being. No, in him. Singularity. Isn't that interesting? Especially in a Greek culture. Um, their desire is for somebody who made them who created them, uh, for connection with the universe at some degree. This is what the cultural ache is. And so he gives this amazing prophetic message. He says this, what you ache for, I know the source. 
And it's just like reading, I remember the first time I read this, I just had chills. I was like, oh, whoa. But, but here's the thing. Very few people come to faith from this. Look, look down your Bibles, verse 32, it says this. When they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject that that Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was these other people, three other people. It's awesome, and it's cool. It's a really amazing you know, moment in the text, but remember the 3,000 people who came to faith at Pentecost? <laughs> remember entire churches being planted by Paul? Remember the Christian haven that Antioch became because of Paul? Not so much in Athens. They simply say, hmm, we want to hear you again on this. And so here's my question to you, Bible scholars. Was this a success? Was this a complete, you're like, man, he led three people to the Lord. Yeah, that's a pretty good day. <laughs> it is a success, right? But, but is this a, do you think Paul is thinking about this and saying, this was a huge success? See, Paul tended to stay and live wherever fruit was being developed. But here we have people who are mildly amused by the story of Jesus, and he doesn't stay there. He leaves. I mean, if you think about it, you're like, what else could he have done? He entered their culture. Yeah, like, you know, he's like put on flesh, moved into the neighborhood type of a thing. You know, he like totally did the incarnational ministry thing. He like got to know them, right? He spoke their language. He did what they do. He went to the places where they philosophize. He spoke with eloquence. He was wise, but not a ton of fruit. And I don't know about you, but I have some questions. Here's a couple questions for you. Do you need to fully understand a culture in order to reach it? Or, here's another one. Do you need to be a cultural critic to adequately make the argument for Christ? Do you need to understand what's going on in the culture? Always at, you're like, always ahead of the next trend in order to speak to the moment. How intelligent does somebody have to be to lead people to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I think a lot of us don't share our faith because we're like, oh, there's like pastors to do that. How intelligent do you have to be to lead somebody to Christ? Here's one. Oh man, I didn't realize. You know, when I was writing this, I didn't know I was gonna get in trouble. I'm gonna get in trouble with this one. Oh my goodness. How much cultural sensitivity do you need to have to be effective in mission? Well, here in the text, I think we're actually going to get some answers to these questions. I wouldn't just leave you hanging. Look where he goes next. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, if only there was information about the strategy Paul used in Corinth. If only we had some kind of authoritative document that would tell us how Paul's mission strategy changed when he went to Corinth. We do. First Corinthians. <laughs> you know, to be honest, the first time I ever saw what we're about to look at, it took my breath away. When I saw he goes from Athens to Corinth, and then he spends the first two chapters of First Corinthians talking about that tra transition from Athens to Corinth. 
blew my mind. And I don't want to create a dichotomy where there isn't one, but I simply want to read the words of Paul as he reflected on this moment in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, going from Athens to Corinth. Let's read this together. It's going to be up on the screen. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. When was that? It was right here, right after Athens. I did not come with eloquence. What? Or human wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved, it was a choice for him, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. (laughs) Paul. (laughs) Look, to Paul, the simple message of the cross of Christ could be polluted with the persuasion of man's words. The simplicity of Christ crucified for the sins of the world, resurrected for the regeneration and eternal life of the saints, could be watered down with human wisdom. And the fruit of these different methods that he used speak for themselves. There is a first and second Corinthians, there is not a first and second Athens. The power of Christ and him crucified being demonstrated and declared to a group of people. It's powerful. This passage um, really became sort of a life passage for me a couple years ago. This uh, one in particular that we just read in 1 Corinthians. And um, after I uh, was born again, (laughs) I I was so passionate for the Lord. I was 17 years, really this year 17 to 22-ish. So passionate for the Lord. I, would have, I was just telling somebody this the other day. I would be like in my room at my parents' house worshiping with my guitar and my mom would be like, dinner. And I'd be like, I can't. Like I'm under the, like the Lord is in my room. I, I, I remember going to places and I couldn't help but share the gospel. I'm like, I just have to share the gospel with this person. I'm like, I remember there was this, I, I, I knew no Spanish and I tried to share the gospel in Spanish just before I lived in Bolivia. I was like, this person doesn't, I like went to this woman at Starbucks. I'm like, hey, I got to tell you something. She's like, no hablo inglés. I'm like, oh, okay, let me try. Uh, I'm like thinking back to like sophomore year Spanish. I'm like, it wasn't enough. Were you in my class? Yeah, we were in the class together in sophomore year Spanish. It was not good. I learned nothing. Uh, but I was just so zealous for the Lord. And then this is what happens. You're like, Oh, young people, they're so passionate for the Lord. Someday, life will really beat it out of them and they'll get wise. You know, it's like, wow, I don't want that wisdom. But somehow I got it. And so when I was 22 years old, I started to believe that the simple message of the blood of Christ was boring. I, I started to believe that it was offensive and that it needed to be explained differently to become more palatable. I began to believe that the message of the cross was just not super relevant for modern, sophisticated urban people. You see, modern people, what I thought, 
See, they needed to understand. Oh, this is, wow, oh gosh, Jake. Oh my goodness. My, my email is jacob at saintshill.church. I gotta get you back. <laughs> See, I, I began to believe that modern people needed to understand their brain chemistry and their personality type. And pop psychology began to play a bigger role in what it meant to be a Christian. So responding to that, what did I do? I thought, oh my goodness, they're very sophisticated. They have all this trauma. How are they ever gonna follow Jesus with all this trauma? It's like, I don't know, man. It seems like the first 2,000 years of Christian history are pretty traumatic as well. Um, (laughs) Like what what happened was I got into theology. I've always loved theology, but I got into theology. I'm like, I'm gonna just read more than anybody else. I'm gonna outsmart this culture. I'm gonna know an answer. I got like apologetics, like on the brain, it marked me. I was like, I'm gonna start, you know, just trying to ninja these, these liberal secular people in my building, in my apartment building. It's like, <laughs> I remember I, I just, the, the op-ed page of the New York Times is like my most visited page on my computer. I'm always like, what, are they, what is everybody thinking? Oh, that's it. Oh, well, they probably don't know this about the Bible. They don't know this about Christians. And I just got this defensive like thing going on. I, I, I thought I could outsmart the culture and out-gospel the culture. And I remember one, one night, I was working at a church at the time, I remember one night I preached at this church, and, and it was a lot of people at this church, and when I was a young guy, you know, you're putting yourself on the line when you preach. Now I don't really care, it's like, if you don't like me, that's okay. But back then I was like, oh, I hope that people think I'm really smart. <laughs> and, um, and so anyways, I was giving this message, and afterwards this guy comes up to me, he's a little older than me, and he's like, he says this to me, he says, when you speak, it's like you're straining your vocal cords, are you okay? Like, it sounds like your vocal cords are like straining. You're trying so hard to sound smart and intellectual. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's gonna take me a couple months to recover from right there. <laughs> and, and you know what? You know what happened was I, I just got worn out. I, he was right. I just got worn out. I got to this place where I knew a lot of stuff about God and about the Bible, even about like, I was in the culture. And, but I just, I remember, I just was like, I don't know if I really even love him anymore. One day I was walking home from work and I was just in this real season of tension in my heart. Like, I'm a pastor. Like, I had like figured out a way in my mind to be like, oh, well, maybe there's just some pastors that are just cultural critics. I'm like, Anyways, it's a whole other story. So anyway, I, so I get home to my house. I sit down on the couch. And I remember the Lord just so clearly, like this thought came through my mind. I know it's from him now. But he said, when have you ever applied the same effort to all the things that you're applying your effort to? When have you ever applied that same effort to understand how much I love you? And I was like, never. It's been a long time at least. And in that season, this passage became one of my life verses, one of the guiding principles of my life, really the reason, one of the reasons why Saints Hill exists, why this church even exists. Because I remembered back to the times when I was most transformed and they were rarely because I took in more information or the wisdom of mortal men. But they resulted because of the cross and what the gospel had become to mean to me. Look, in this season, I remember I told the Lord, I just have, I, was, I feel like I got saved again, it's back in 2015. I, I, I remember I told the Lord, I was like, 
I won't read, I, I, this is so funny. I dropped out of seminary, now I'm back in, but I dropped out of seminary. I was like, I, I made a commitment in my heart. I will not read anything that doesn't produce confidence in you. That was my commitment. It's like, man, maybe other people can like dabble in what's going on and get other voices in their life. I just can't afford to have it. Like I can only have your voice. And so I'm only gonna read stuff where I hear you speaking through it. I, I think learning from mortal people like commentaries and like studying theology, good or bad, it's good. It's a good thing. Um, I'm in, back in seminary now trying to finish. Um, I think studying the culture, understanding the culture, it's all good. But if growth in Christ is dependent upon my ability to collect information, I will be beat every day. The pro- here's the problem. Information doesn't change me. Authority does. You remember what they said about Jesus? They said, he speaks as one with authority. And they said this, not like our scribes and teachers. Well, if you go back and you look at what, what were the scribes and teachers doing? How did they teach? They constantly were quoting other scribes and teachers. <laughs> but what, <laughs> okay, here we go. Intimacy produces authority. Information does not. Because here, so, They're like, he speaks as one with authority. Well, what was he speaking? We actually know, because the scriptures tell us that he only said what he heard the Father say. So if you want to speak like one with authority, then you're going to have to drop a lot of the other voices in your life, and you're going to have to tune into one voice and only say what that voice is saying. Information does not produce authority. Intimacy produces authority. So here's the point. I hope I'm not creating a dichotomy because it's both. I think Paul was successful, hear me. But cultural, cultural intelligence, it's important. We need to have it. I wanna know Newburgh, I wanna know this valley, I wanna know the ways that people are thinking, the temptations of modern false gospels, I wanna know all of it. But what is even more important is that we have a people who demonstrate the power of the cross of Christ in their lives and in their actions. I I really think there's a shift taking place in our church from the idol of reason to being witnesses of another world. From the idol of reason to being witnesses of another world. You know, there's been general trends in the evangelical church over the past 50 years um, on how to interact with the culture. How do you actually interact with the culture, engage a culture? Um, and, and, and as you read through church history, some of these different trends, they're just re, you know, repetition from things in the past. Um, and, and so I think about like the Jesus people movement. How, how many of you were alive during the, I mean, man, I'm gonna point you out, but yeah. Okay, one, one person's willing to raise their hand. Okay, we honor you guys. If you were alive during the Jesus people movement, we honor you guys. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. We need mother and fathers in this church like you who have gone deep and far with the Lord. I know I'm young. I know we got a young team, but we honor you and we need you guys to stay here and to really ask the question in, in, these, you know, in, the, in the second half of my life, how do I invest in the next generation? Um, but I think about the Jesus people movement and, and, and here, here's kind of the general, and I think I'm right about this, but here's kind of the general trend of the Jesus people movement. How do you engage with the culture? You don't. Be separate from the culture. Don't, be, don't, don't compromise with the culture. Come out from them was kind of the general idea of, uh, of the Jesus people movement. And, and then we got kind of after the Jesus people movement, we got this movement in the 90s all throughout and up into the 2000s in the church, which was this. How do you engage with the culture? You try to be cool like the culture. The, the term for, for this period, I think, is relevance. 
How, there's even a magazine dedicated to it. Like, how do we be relevant to the culture? How do we make sense to the culture? But it seems to me like there's maybe even a new, you know, we're, there's a lot of churches trying to do the cool thing. But, but I think there's even a new wave of, um, of kind of a trend in evangelicalism, which is this. How do you engage with the culture? You be reasonable. Don't be weird. <laughs> Don't be wacky. Be reasonable. The temptation is this. As we discover more about psychology and the role of trauma, as political fervor replaces religion, and as morals bend to the every whim of an individual, as Christians, our heads can spin as we try to imagine how to reach people with such various commitments and dilemmas. How are we gonna do this? We feel that we need a reasonable and complex message to adequately attract sophisticated people and combat false narratives. And when we don't see any fruit in our ministries, because it's just information, not authority, we then chalk it up to just the complexity of the age. Oh, it's just fallow ground. It's a secular culture. Nobody's interested in Jesus anymore. The damage that evangelicals have done over the past you know, 30 years, that's all why. Let me ask you this question. Is evangelism, sharing your faith with people, is it like performing cultural surgery? Or is it like a bomb of truth? Is it surgery or an explosion? Is it surgery like you're weaving in and out of like the cultural sinews and nerves and trying not to touch on that? And oh, we're not gonna talk so much about that. I know that's kind of an awkward thing. You'll get there. But right here and... Or is it like, no, here's the truth, and my life is now a demonstration of the truth displayed? It's something, that, something to think about, but it seems to me that Paul believed there are some things only power can reveal, and there are some things that no amount of reason could discover. Paul, he says this, once again, for I resolved... Think about that. He's like, when I go there, I'm resolving. This is, a pa- this is a past decision he made on the way to Corinth, isn't it? For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. <laughs> Paul is addressing here a a temptation to focus on human wisdom over God's power. Now, why would those two things be in tension? Do they have to be in tension? Well, let's actually, let's break down our terms a little bit. What is wisdom? What is human wisdom? Human wisdom is the collective truths decided upon based upon human experience. Like, don't stick your finger in a light socket. Like, if you don't have a budget, you're gonna waste all your money. It's human wisdom. It's like, hey, people have gone before you, and even though you're, you're a young gun, and you don't know this stuff, let me tell you this. It's mentorship. It's human wisdom, right? But inherently, here's what human wisdom is. It's earthly thinking. Human wisdom is solving Earth's problems with Earth's solutions. That's what human wisdom is. Solving Earth's problems with earthly solutions. So the best human wisdom can do is help you navigate what we've come to call normal on earth. So what's the power of God? The the power of God is inherently outside of this world. 
The power of God is inherently other. It violates the earth's rules about death and sickness. It completely grabs you and it says, look, do you see heaven opening above you? Do you see what is possible? Do you see that nothing on earth, there's nothing on earth that is a well like this, is a source like this? It's God's power. Next slide. If you only focus on reason and the wisdom of mortal men, you may understand the context you're in, but never get a glimpse of the prophetic destiny of the people around you. You may seem reasonable, just not powerful. Power beats context. Why? Because no matter what your context is, it's been shaped by sin. So healing, salvation, from the effects of sin, resonate to every person in every culture, in every time. The cross is the most relevant message across all cultures. What does Jesus uh, tell his disciples to do when he sends them out? He says, cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim a new reality, the kingdom of God. And he, it's so crazy, it's like, shouldn't they go to seminary first? It's like, Bible school. These guys are fishermen. (laughs) Nope. He's like, no, I just want you to go do it. They don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. (laughs) Why would he do that? Why is that what he wants them to do? Why doesn't he say, go out and find out what people's deepest concerns are and show them how the Torah points to truth? Why, why, why power? Why cast out demons? Awkward. Well, why heal the sick? Like, what if they don't get better? <laughs> why proclaim this new reality? Nobody's going to believe you. They, they got the wisdom of men. Just, they live, they're swimming in the wisdom of men. Why? Because power doesn't argue. It demonstrates a reality. So all... Okay, if we're going to clap, we got to clap. <laughs> or just don't clap. Um... Power demonstrates a re- another reality. I remember the Lord telling me this. I'd been try- trying so hard to do all this apologetic stuff. And he said, how many intellectual and emotional and traumatic hurdles would somebody leap over if they were healed by God? <laughs> they can't not believe because God became real to them. When we idolize reason, we make the Christian life more complex than it is. And we give ourselves an easy out for not seeing any fruit. It's just complex. We give ourselves a reason for being powerless. When we idolize reason and cultural critique, we're subtly living by the belief that people can be argued into the kingdom and that being in the kingdom is more about having the correct facts than knowing a person. Reason is easy because it's respectable. It just won't bring heaven down. You know, I lived with these beliefs for a long time in that, in, in that same season of exhaustion and, and trying to outsmart the culture. I used to do this thing. I was a high school pastor, and, and I did this thing called Stump the Pastor. <laughs> I would go into Portland high schools, and I would sit before philosophy classes, and I would say, you can ask any question you, I mean, I've really done my studying. You can ask any question you want. I promise you I'll have an answer for it. And I would just, I would just they'd be like, how come Christians are so bigoted? How come Christians are so conservative? How come Christians do this, this, or this? Hey, don't you guys believe this? Don't you believe that? I'm like, it was amazing. 
There's a, man, there was some cool fruit actually came from it. Not a ton of fruit, but some fruit came from it. I remember that I got this letter from this gal, and she said, my parents raised me to hate Christians, but you've showed me that Christians are actually different than I had been taught to believe. I thought, wow, that's, that's something, right? That's a mind change. Um, and I think that for me personally, I did this. I, I got so into this um, because I, I had this desire to be seen as a reasonable person, to somehow get out from under the public scrutiny that Christians have lived with for 2,000 years. I'm like, maybe I could get out of the public scrutiny of being so wacky and believing in God and all that stuff. Um, now, when I, around 25, when I felt like I met Jesus all over again, and I discovered who I really was and how God made me, we started to do things differently at the youth group that I was pastoring. Really the same heart that we have here at this. Some of, some of our even students from that youth group come to this church. Um, and, and we started to just kind of do things differently. I remember I preached about the power of Jesus' blood. I did just talk about the cross and the resurrection, what it meant. Um, I talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. And we did weird stuff. Like we would wait in silence for like long periods of time. We worshiped for a long time. Um, we, we talked about sin and the dangers of it. We basically did all the things you're not supposed to do if you want your youth group to grow. We did all those things. And... Um, what was the fruit? Like, what was the fruit? Like, kids were on fire. I still hear from them. And they're still on fire for the Lord. It's so powerful. They got a taste of his goodness, and they couldn't get the taste out of their mouth. We had, like, evangelists popping up. I remember there was this gal. We never told kids how to evangelize. There was just this gal. She came to me one night, and she's like, I just shared my faith underneath the bleachers at a high school football game to, like, four of my friends the other night. I'm like, you did what? I'm like, that's the scariest place when you're in high school. Don't go into the bleachers, guys. It's like, Whoa. Like, they, were, they became prophets. I remember, I remember they were, you know, attempting to prophesy over one another. I remember I, would, I asked my, my team, like, how long do you think it takes for some kid to come into the youth group who's brand new before they give their first prophetic word? And it was like two weeks. Like, they would just come in the, into the environment and everybody's prophesying over everybody and they're like, oh, uh, I, 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 something's coming to my mind, actually. Let me share this. And you're like, that was so prophetic. The Spirit of God is totally using you. It was awesome. Uh, they became witnesses of another world and it didn't look reasonable because it wasn't. It wasn't. We are witnesses of another world. I, I want to just put this up on the screen. I want us to actually just like ruminate on this, maybe even take a photo of it. This is the simple, powerful message that we have. God loved his creation. He came to liberate his creation from slavery to sin and to make possible a relationship with all of humanity once again. Our sin deserves death. Yet he made it possible through his death to no longer have sin separate us from him. Every person has the possibility of closeness. When we want the blood of Jesus to cover us, when we recognize our need of God, we become completely forgiven, totally made pure, and have access through the Holy Spirit to live with the same power Jesus did when he was on earth. This is our message. This is what our lives are to be shaped around. This is the reality that we get to live with, that we get to be a witness to. It's so beautiful because it's so unreasonable. So do you know it? Have you felt it? Evangelism is very simple. Um, it's really not so much how you do it, but why. We talk about what we love. We talk about whatever's saving us. There's some of you who he's, gonna, he's saving tonight. So I want to end with this, developing a heart for the lost. Paul is distressed when he sees the idols. Verse 16, 
uh, look back down at your Bibles. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Have you ever been greatly distressed looking at our culture? <laughs> You're like, yeah, all of 2020. <laughs> Here's perhaps the difference. Paul wasn't distressed because of a political party, but because the society was full of idolatry. Idolatry happens when someone believes that the material or the physical world or other people can do more for them than God can. When people believe that the kind of sex they desire can do more than what God can. When an item can do more for them than what God can. A car, a house, an experience, a political representative can do more than what God can. And idolatry is the physical representation of that deep ache in them not being met. And so they're looking for it somewhere. This, is, this, this distress is what moves Paul. It's what opens his mouth. The gap between his joy in the Lord and their lack. So let me ask you this question. What's the cultural ache of this valley? What's the ache of your roommate? What's the ache of your school? The ache of your home? What's the ache of your workplace? Is it distressing? Or are you offended by it? Sometimes the ache offends us. We hate the way that our culture medicates the ache. Their idolatry is just so gross because it's sin. But we have to remember that they have nothing else. They're just looking for something in their world they don't know about the other world. They're looking for something in their world to medicate. So we of all people should be the ones who witness the greater reality Something more profound than Netflix, than shopping, than experience, than sex. We need to be softened and remember that people who are trying to soothe the ache within them are just lost sons and daughters. They don't know that, that they're the reason why Jesus even came. Luke 19 verse 10 says this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love this imagery because what does it mean to be lost? It means there's a place you belong. It means there's a place that's home, a family that you belong to. Would you all stand with me? Wherever the worship team is, we'll have them come up, and Austin and our prayer people. Um, our message to the world, to Newburgh, to our valley, uh, is that there's a place you belong. There's a place where that, the deepest ache of your heart, the thing you're trying to medicate, it can be satisfied. So if you're home tonight and you're not lost, I want you to even maybe just look around. Look around you. Who's, who's missing from home? Who's lost that you know? Maybe you're here tonight and you just feel lost. It says, Jesus says that God leaves the 99 other sheep who are home to find the sheep that is lost and missing and he is, he is looking for you tonight. You are in the right place. So here's what I wanna do. I want us to just take a moment to just ask the Lord a, a couple things.
First, would you just even put your hand over your heart? Would you just uh, say, say this with me? God, I want your heart for the lost. God, I won't be offended. I'll love the culture around me. God, I want to be a witness to your world. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it costs, I was made for more than normal. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier